the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky team. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. (laughs) Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program and kick the weekend off uh, early with a little talk about music with uh, British music journalist and broadcaster uh, phoning in from the uh, U.K. about his uh, new book called Prince, A Portrait of the Artist in Memories and Memorabilia. Hey, Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, morning, Tom. How are you doing? Doing great. Um, Paul, what, what is the interest in Prince? This isn't your, your first look at, uh, at Prince and his career. No, you know, I just endless fascination, I suppose, is 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 the phrase, Tom. He's it feels like somebody that's been in my life and all of our lives for forever, really. Um, I go back as a as a music journalist. The very first uh, thing I ever have had in print in the UK was in 1977, which coincidentally was the year that Prince signed his first record deal with Warner Brothers uh, when he was still very young, and. I suppose the legend has just grown and grown. You know, that there's that extraordinary mystique around the guy. Um, and that's part of the story. But I think, you know, the, the, the idea behind the book really was to try and get to know him a little better through people who, who did know him themselves and worked with him closely over the years. So this is by no means, um, you know, the definitive Prince biography. It's really designed to be... Um, uh, more of uh, you know scenes from his life, I would say, as described by people who were there with him at the time. And then the other part of it, um, as hinted at in the title, is um, you know a kind of visual representation of that, with lots of rare images of um, uh, you know costumes that he wore on stage, guitars that he played, letters that he wrote, uh, all kinds of artifacts. So that's that's the idea behind it. 
what do what do those things the the memorabilia tell us uh, you know we're used to these wild stories about uh michael jackson and the things that he collected um what what kinds of things you mentioned guitars and costumes and we expect to see mm. those things but what sure. were there some unusual memorabilia that um that that might uh I don't know, focus the lens a little bit more into behind prints? Yes, I, I hope so. And I can easily deflect the credit for that if, if there are, because uh, I was working with some terrific people at the publishing company, Wellbeck. Um, you know, you really need to have somebody on board who, who knows where, what they're doing and where to go to look for those kind of images, um, a lot of which now reside in auction houses. You know, that's uh, a lot of these uh, artifacts are kind of going in and out of private collections. So, yes, there are plenty of, uh, of the outrageous outfits and, you know, the, the, as a way of demonstrating how his fashion's changed almost every day, pretty much, um, and the uh, very, uh, you know, spectacular-looking instruments that he would play. But in addition to that, you're right, obviously you need more than that. Um, for example, we've got a, a photograph of Prince's Bible in there from when he became a Jehovah's Witness, um, and there are several letters that he wrote to various people, both um, internal memos to people working at his Paisley Park label, um, ranging from that to letters that he wrote to fellow artists, um, in one or two cases, simply to express his enthusiasm for their work. You know, and that's something I'm fond of because I think it proves beyond all of the, the, the you know, the, the image and the, and the showbiz, um, Prince was first and foremost an enormous music fan and consumer, you know, right back to when he was a kid. Um, so those are just a few of the things that are in there. Well, you know, most people are are familiar with Prince, obviously through his music and his performances, and for the impact that he had on uh, on Minneapolis. I, I mean, virtually turning it into a music city in a way by yeah. by having his own complex there for recording and producing other artists as well. Um, sure. But what was the deal with the whole artist formerly known as Prince thing? <laughs> you know, it's one of those things you look back on it now, and it's quite a long time ago, and it's still a bit of a head-scratcher in a way. You know, it's, it, it did divide opinion quite quite violently at the time, and, um, you know, I think there are two ways of looking at it. He, he Basically, it was Prince taking a stand against his record company, um, and that was Warner Brothers, who he'd been with for a long time by then. Uh, really because they didn't want to work in the same way that he did. That's the, that was the, the, the gist of it, or the start of the argument. Um, Prince was so prolific, you know, he just had, and this is the reason that we now, as a lot of people know, there is this enormous vault of unreleased material by him. Um, if he'd had his own way, he probably would have been releasing two, if not three, albums per year. And he found it increasingly impossible to deal with the fact that that is not the way that record companies work. You know, it's just not the way that the industry is set up. Um, and that started the argument that led to him, uh, you know, forsaking his his recording name and becoming known, as you say, as the artist formerly known as Prince, or Taff Cap, <laughs> um, and having the word slave, uh, you know, on his face. So he really did take a very strong stand against it. And, you know, it, it's... It, it, you can argue it both ways from one point of view he had up to that point been happy to um take all the benefits that come from being with a record company in terms of the promotion and the marketing that helped him to become very famous in the first place um on the other hand 
you know, you could say that it was brave in the sense that it could potentially have ended his career, you know, that in those days this was uncharted territory for any artist. Um, but it's something that he did several times over. You know, much later he would take a, another very daring stand against uh, the, well, the very way that m music was being marketed. You, you probably remember that he was just about the first major artist to, to suggest the idea of giving away his music for free because he saw the future as being through um, the, the potential and the strength of live music and that uh, you know, recorded music would be a kind of a secondary thing to that. And again, it's one of those things that divided people down the middle, and um, you know, it, it's certainly not something that you ever wanted to encourage, the idea of music being for free, because that led into the, the era of digital piracy. Um, but he was certainly right about the idea of the power of, of the live concert, and that is, apart from these horrible last 18 months that we've been going through, you know, before that, and again soon, I hope, um, you know, artists that can play live are the ones who really have a chance of, of actually making a go of it in this business. You know, I can't help wondering how Prince would have grappled with the um, restrictions over the last uh, almost two years now because of the COVID-19 yeah. pandemic. And so many artists um, figured out ways to uh, they did everything from Facebook concerts to YouTube postings and, and things to mm. continue to get music out to their their fans. And I wonder what kind of creative expression would have come out of Prince during that. That's a great question. I mean, I think he... You know, he I mean, would it's, have a, been it's speculation, you know. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's fair to say that he, he would have been climbing the walls, as, as all creative people have been. Um, you know, I've spoken to an awful lot of artists at, at the height of lockdown who were just desperate to do anything, you know, because this is their, their kind of lifeblood being almost taken away from them. Um, I suppose he would have had to resort to doing live streams the way that so many artists did. Um, I'm sure he would have found a very creative way of doing that, you know, because yeah, he, he I wasn't just, somebody I can't, who ever... ever I, I can't help thinking that that he might have founded a cable channel and put on live shows around yeah. the clock or, or something. Yes, yeah, so it would have been entirely big. possible. Yeah, I think so. I mean, this is the thing. A lot of artists were were kind of um, you know shooting in the dark when it came to that because they they had to learn new skills that they'd never learned before. And you know, I, I was involved with a lot of live streams myself during that that period. And you were looking at artists who simply weren't used to the idea of performing that way. You know, I mean, it's better than nothing, for sure. But, you know, the, the, I saw it so many times that an artist would, would uh, you know, on a, be on a live stream, um, finishing a song and <laughs> just not knowing what to do because, you know, it, that reflex of, of waiting for the applause is pretty much hard hardwired in, in a lot of artists. So, yeah, it, he... he I, you know, there would have been struggles in it, involved in it, but I'm sure that he would have um, overcome it in, in a, a typically clever and creative way. <laughs> At one point, uh, a friend of mine, a, a really quite phenomenal uh, guitar player and, and singer and songwriter, um, did a did a challenge um, on his Facebook page. He promised to post a new song every day for 30 days by request right. yeah and that's he, amazing and and it, what was fun about it paul was that 
they weren't songs from his list or his library. It it was it forced him to learn a new song for each yeah. day's performance. I I just, yeah, it's a great way to do it, and you know I think that's what the situation required. You know, was people with with imagination like that. Um, you know, I, I have artists friends in the UK here who managed to, uh, you know, mount unusual concerts and in, in some cases monetize them quite well because this is the other thing. You know, we're talking about it from a, from a fan point of view and as, as listeners and consumers, but, uh, you know, this is people's livings that were being threatened here. So, um, yeah, it, it, it did require quite some imagination. And, uh, it's, yes, it's, it's fascinating to think what Prince might have done with it. Yeah, I, I, I think that would be um, interesting. Um, what's coming up? Next for you, Paul, uh, is there more to the Prince story, or have you started looking uh, around for others? Well, yes, is the answer to that in terms of you know other potential um, projects. I think, I mean, the Prince story will will never be over because, as we know, and as a lot of his fans have been following, you know, we, there's been a succession of releases from him. Uh, in the five years, can you believe it's already five years since he died, um, including the, what, the album that came out earlier this summer uh, called Welcome to America, uh, which is really very good. If anybody's uh, interested to, to hear it and hasn't caught up with it yet, I would recommend it because it's a record that he had actually planned to put out in, in its entirety um, about 10 years ago. So it hangs together really well. And it's actually a very, very fascinating uh, insight into his uh, view on what was happening to America um, and the world, you know, in terms of um, the digital era and social media at, at that point. So, you know, th there could easily be new um, new chapters, should we say, to uh, to that story. Um, but meanwhile, uh, in my, you know, I'm, I'm a, a freelance journalist and, and broadcaster, so there, there are, at any given time, there are probably a good half a dozen different projects, you know, different things that I'm juggling with. Right, um, right. One, Paul, one or two of them not quite out, out in the open yet. I, I have a break coming up here in about a minute, and I hope you'll stick mm -hmm. around so we can talk some more. Of course. Um, but in in the remaining minute or so, can you remind me and the listeners about the uh, circumstances of Prince's death five years ago? Yeah, well, I mean, it's very sad to recount because it was such a, you know, it, it was such a shock to everybody. Um, and this is something I was sensing when I was doing a lot of the interviews for the book because some of them took place soon after that. And a lot of people were still trying to figure it out. Um, you know, he, because he was such a hardworking guy and, uh, you know, a real workaholic, he would be on stage, you know, on a show day, he could be on stage for many, many hours because he would do, do a long uh, sound check and then the gig itself and then his famous after show. And it, it took a huge toll on his body. Um, is the sad fact. You know, he was a, quite a short guy, you know, dancing for hours and hours in, in high heels, um, put a real strain on him, and uh, it developed into, a, uh, obviously, a, a reliance on, on painkillers um, and an eventual overdose, but not in the traditional rock and roll sense, you know, and that's something that makes it even more sad because it actually relates to the fact that he was, um, you know, his, his entire work ethic in the first place. Well, we are going to take a short break. Let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. And then we'll return to talk more about the new book, Prince, a Portrait of the Artist in Memories and Memorabilia, 
with uh, the author Paul Sexton from the UK. So don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse, we'll be right back. Hello darling, this is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You are, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Hello. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. 
Adopt. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation about Prince with uh, British music journalist and broadcaster and author of a new book called Prince, A Portrait of the Artist in Memories and Memorabilia from Paul Sexton. And Paul, uh, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Uh, My pleasure, Tom. The book, um, is this... Is this book, Paul, a a trip down memory lane, or are there some revelations in the book? Well, I think it's probably not the kind of book that's going to grab um, you know sensationalist headlines. But I do hope that there, even for people who are big Prince fans and maybe even experts, um, you know, that there's some new uh, revelations in there or insights into his life from. as I mentioned, from some of the people that work with him closely, um, one of the things that I, I was pleased to, to kind of tease out um, it, it, to some extent was his sense of humor, you know, which is not necessarily something that people would have at the top, the top of their list of, um, of his attributes. I suppose because he, you know, he was such a, such a glamorous um, and, and mysterious figure. Um, and and you know, such a consummate of, worker and, and performer. Yeah. That's right. Uh, who you know demanded an extremely high standard of himself and and of other people as well, and, and really didn't suffer fools. You know, he you either you made the grade or you didn't. And um, you know, there were quite a few people who would have had to um, probably not so much shape up as ship out. You know, but having said that, um, you know what I what I was also fascinated to to find was. Um, what a uh, what a team player he could be for somebody who was was quite a loner in many ways, um, caused by the fact that there were so few people that really came up to his, to his level, and that's not necessarily being arrogant, it's just, just was what he found. Um, but he enjoyed the idea of bands, you know, he, from quite early on, in fact, even before he made his first record, he pursued the idea of it being in a band format um, before, you know, people noticed uh, this irresistible talent that he had as a, as a solo um, figurehead, you know, so he, he went down that solo path. But really, as soon as he could, he started to form live bands around him, and then those that uh, that played with him on the records, like the Revolution, and then later on the New Power Generation. Um, and he gave opportunities to, to so many people. You know, I mean, there was more than one occasion where he almost literally took, got people kind of off the street or off some real workaday job, you know, to, to give them an opportunity to be in his band. Um, so he could be a very generous. Guy. Well, and, he certainly um, put Sheila E on the well. map. I'm sorry, say that again? He surely put uh, um, Sheila E on the map. Yeah, I mean, I think he, you know, he just did, he did so much for, for so many people and so many, you know, and uh, really for R&B music in, in, in general. There's, there's an interview with him from quite early on, uh, which I believe is still on YouTube, where, you know, somebody asks him, uh, what he hopes to achieve with his music, and he, he you know, obviously he wants to to be big and and do well himself. But he has this mission um, about him, you know, from early on that he he wants music, he wants to make music that brings people together. Um, and he was even at a young age very bored with the, with the kind of genre divides that we, and as journalists, we're very guilty of this, that we put on music, you know, and all of the the, the different 
formats and um, you know things that were almost deliberately and artificially sort of uh, separated from each other. His whole idea was to you know create music that would would uh, blur the boundaries between soul and rock, for example, um, which of course he certainly did. You know, as, as he gets gets on in his career, um, you think about the intro for When Doves Cry with an amazing rock guitar solo, and there's lots of other examples of that. Um, and also to make music that would bring together people of every every possible creed and color and, and sexuality. So, um, you know, quite a visionary in in many ways. You mentioned, um, you know, that that he he had a sense of humor, and that that comes out mm. in your book. Um, were there other surprises for you as you were researching this book and doing the various? Uh, interviews and, and collecting material. What were some other things? You followed him. What were some other surprises for you? Well, I'll tell you one thing that really, um, you know, it, it, it was sort of, in a funny way, staring me in the face, but it's something that had never been said out loud to me before. As I was talking to a lot of the, the uh, you know, people who knew him, um, and that's, you know, fellow musicians, uh, engineers, and, and label people, you know, a real mixture of uh, people, I, I would request whether they had any images of him. And uniformly, the answer was no, because he wouldn't allow it. You know, that's something that goes to how, what a, what a, how intensely private he was as a person. Um, and, you know, the, even those who did work closely with him, for example, Susan Rogers, who was his engineer in, in the 80s, and oh, really through all those classic records from 83 to 87, and Susan's somebody I, I had had the pleasure of interviewing before on a number of occasions, and she's terrific. But she's, you know, she she talks. You're reading my mind, him. Paul. I was just going to ask you about her because <laughs> she wrote a foreword yeah. for the book. Yes, she did. I mean, she's she's been so lovely and, and generous, um, you know, in terms of her her time with with the interviews themselves. And then at the end, of, towards the end of the process, I said to her, "I wonder if you would consider writing the foreword." And she was very happy to do it, and it's uh, you know it's another favorite part of the, the whole experience for me because um, it, it's a very personal observation, you know. And she, I said to her, if you can, you know, it's entirely up to you what you write. Um, she writes really well, you know. She's a, she's now a, a professor at, uh, at Berkeley, and um, she, I said, if you can do anything, think of anything different to say that, than than you said in the in the book already, that would be great. And she certainly did that, you know. She came up with this wonderful and very moving uh, revelation about uh, what what happened immediately after Prince died, actually the night after everyone got this terrible news, she and a whole bunch of her friends and fellow, um, uh, you know, Prince insiders, although she doesn't like that word, but they were, <laughs> um, just got together to, you know, in a, a, a venue in, in Minneapolis, um, to just to sort of share their grief and to, to, and to swap stories about him. You know, this was not for broadcast. I don't think it was filmed. Um, I'm not sure there's any specific record of it, but she writes about it in, at the very beginning of the, of the forward, and, and it's moving stuff because, um, you know, there are, there are things in there. Each of them would go round in the circle kind of thing and, and share a, a memory of him. And, you know, it, it, even in there, there are, there are things that, that really make you smile. Susanna Melvoin, who was another one of his real, um, uh, you know, uh, favorite musicians, and they were romantically linked in the 80s as well. She tells a story about being on holiday with him in, in, uh, in the Caribbean, I believe, and uh, they're out, I think they were snorkeling, and, and they're out, you know, he, he is joking around and making her laugh so much, she actually thought she was going to drown. Um, you know, <laughs> so there's, there's, a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of playful stuff in there as well.
How long did it take to put this, uh, this project together? Well, it, you know, this is an interesting uh, thing because it, it has an unusual evolution in the book in that it actually started out on the radio um, four years ago. So this would have been on the first anniversary of his death. On the BBC. Uh, one of the things I do... Yes, that's right. One of the things I do is make documentaries and also, you know, some other shows as well for the BBC, for BBC Radio 2 in the UK, uh, which if any of your listeners have been over here will know is, uh, is the biggest um, radio station, not just in the UK, but in, in all of Europe. Um, and among the many, many scores of documentaries that I've made was this one called Prince and Me, uh, which was a two-hour show, so it was a really good opportunity to kind of dive quite deeply into his, his story. And um, that really was the idea behind the, the documentary, was to, um, to, to try and reach as many of these inside uh, sources as possible. Um, and as I, I mentioned, you know, some of them were people that I'd had the opportunity to, of meeting before and doing other things with. So I'd kind of nudged the door open, I think, you know, with some of them. Obviously, they're a little wary of the media, understandably. Um, so it began with that. And uh, as fate would have it, um, and on the basis that you never know who's out there listening, <laughs> somebody from the publishing company was and uh, got in touch with me and, um, uh, you know, started to suggest the idea that this could, could become a book. So in that sense, uh, you could say that it's a four-year process because uh, that's, or I felt probably more than that because of the time spent creating the, um, the documentary and getting to all those people. Um, and, and then in terms of the writing, I mean, uh, someone asked me recently how many contributors there are, and you, they might be, you might be surprised to know that it's, it's not a vast number. I would probably say in terms of the main, the core interviewees for the book, it would be maybe half a dozen um, who occur, you know, recur a lot throughout the book. And then there's uh, plenty of other kind of cameo appearances in there as well. So, yes, it's, kind of, it's one of those things that's um, popped up, you know, uh, a, few, a few times in my, my recent working life. With all the, the media work that you've done and the writing that you've done, this is your first book. Yeah. Do you have the bug yeah, now? Have... <laughs> I'm afraid I think I, I, think I probably do. <laughs> you know, and, and that is a common question, as you can imagine. People are like, well, why has it taken you this long? You know, I've been writing, as I've revealed, you know, 40, I guess it's 44 years. Um, a number of reasons. I think uh, there was a time as, as a sort of, you know, very much a dyed-in-the-wool freelance person. Um, I think I used to imagine that, you you know, and when you have so many different projects on the go at any one time, I think I once thought that, you know, you would probably have to just stop all of the others to <laughs> to really give your, your complete attention to a book. And actually, I, I found that there's, you know... Go off to a cottage, of... go off to a cottage for several months, yeah. and then you come back with the, with the great yeah. tome. That's it. Yeah, it'd be the equivalent of a, of a band going, going away to the country, wouldn't it? Getting it together in the country, as they say. Yeah. Um, yeah, I used to think like, maybe that was it, but it, that turns out not to be true, you know, and um, I was very lucky in the sense that someone came to me with, with the idea. I, I don't, I'm not sure it would have occurred to me to, um, to go down that path with, with the Prince um, book, but I must say everyone's being very kind and, and uh, you know, seems to be very interested in, in the, uh, the subject matter, even though, you know, he's somebody that, that is being written about on a very <laughs> regular basis, you know, and uh, uh, other authors more, more uh, qualified than, than I to, um, you know, to really tell the long and complete life story and, and probably to, to analyze in more detail his, um, you know, his sort of cultural contribution. But um, I think the idea with, the, with, the, with this book is it can, you know, I hope it will appeal to Prince fans and those that know a lot about him, but it can also be a kind of entry-level <laughs> um, 
Prince book, you know, for people, because of course this is something that's easy to forget. There are people discovering him uh, and all major artists and brand new artists, you know, uh, every day there's, there's going to be somebody sort of new to the party. So uh, this, could be, uh, this could be the one for them. There are a lot of images in this book. How much are, how much of the book is devoted to those images, and how much to narrative and interviews and and so on? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's a it's a really good mix of the two. Probably probably fifty fifty. Actually, I, you know, I couldn't tell you the exact ratio, but um, you know, there are photographs on nearly every page um and the, the the structure of the book it's it's broadly chronological um but as i say not intended to be a life story as such and i think the you know again this comes back to working with good people who know how to how to illustrate these things you know the the, the relevant photo obviously will, will occur pretty close to, the, to to that particular piece of um narrative and they the, the the team just did such a good job in in finding um the right image to fit the story in, in so many cases. And, um, you know, in the, in the early years, for example, uh, if, uh, in that period where Prince was still doing interviews, of course, he pretty much withdrew from that in later years. Um, but early on, uh, you know, in combination with my new interviews for the book, there are excerpts from interviews that he gave for, in the early days, even for sort of local, you know, Minneapolis newspapers and, and magazines. And there's, uh, you know, right back to school years that we have stories from from that period, and there's a there's a you know there's the picture from his high school yearbook, for example, where he looks like he already looks like trouble, you know. Did you ever have a chance to interview Prince himself? No, very sadly, I didn't. So you know, that's the that's the one great sort of um, uh, regret uh, when it comes to to the book. Um, I by the time. Well, let's, let's say, you know, from early on, obviously, he was around in the States doing interviews. The thing to mention, actually, on that score from a U.K. perspective is that it, we, it, we didn't get him at first. You know, it was quite a long time before he really became a, 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 what you could call a mainstream figure in the U.K. I do remember him, you know, getting airplay in the U.K., uh, and in London in particular. Um, a lot of listeners will remember one of his first singles called I Want to Be Your Lover, um, yeah. which was an R&B, R&B number one in the States, fantastic record. Um, it, it made the charts here, but only just, you know, it kind of just missed the top 40. And, and that was the only one of his initial, you know, probably dozen or more singles to, to even to register that. You know, the rest of them didn't do anything at all. So he was very much a specialist taste uh, in the UK. And, you know, we, think about our media here in those days, we were so far behind you guys. You know, I think uh, you're talking about an era when we only had three national TV stations, you know, so the and outlets for music were really limited. You know, we had the famous Top of the Pops show, but that was completely chart-oriented, so that's a kind of chicken-and-egg situation. You know, if you didn't have a hit, you weren't on it, and if you weren't on it, you didn't get a hit. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> he didn't... He, <laughs> he wouldn't have featured on there... Um, and there was a kind of unspoken uh, bias against uh, R&B music, I think, in those days, you'd have to say. you know, A lot like Dick hard. Clark was here in the early days. Yes, yes that's right. Well, you know, this is, so many of those shows, those really important shows that you had, we never got them here at all. Uh, and, you, you know, you can go right back to the days of, I don't know, Shindig or other shows yeah. in the 60s. You know, it's fascinating for us. Ed Sullivan, can you believe that? Ed Sullivan's show was never on in the UK. It's just nuts, you know, and... That's why now, that's one fascinating thing, aspect of, of um, the digital world, I guess, you know, and looking at, uh, 
archives that are available, and in particular with the Ed Sullivan Show, they've done a they've done a deal with um, with Universal Music, so the, you know they're opening up that archive, and it's absolutely fascinating to see this stuff, especially for an international viewer because we never saw it in the first place. Right, right, and you know what's sad about the Ed Sullivan Show is uh, when it got canceled, there was no warning, there was no last no. show. No, that's right. Yeah, and boy, there would have been some big uh, production for that, wouldn't there? If, if, yeah, if, if there'd been time. <laughs> yeah, that's so yeah. sad because he, you know, he he was such a tremendous influence um, in yeah. this country. You know, on on Sunday nights, what? And that's where I first saw the Beatles. Of course, yeah, that very famous. Well, I mean, that's probably the most famous television show in history, isn't it? I would think. I, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. It, it, it is great. I, in my daily work, uh, I do a lot of writing for uh, a, a website called You Discover Music, which is which is run by Universal Music. So these Ed Sullivan clips are, are t- terrific material. You know, the, uh, quite often I'll write a story about one of the new ones that they've released, um, and you know, those those clips have sometimes been have appeared before on YouTube, but not in this form. And it's absolutely, you know, you could you could waste many hours <laughs> uh, looking at those things because they like any of these long-running shows, they reflect the fashions of the day so brilliantly. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, that kind of brings us back to Prince. We, we had a little launch event for the book uh, here in London um, just recently, and one of the things that I did with it was to actually screen some Prince videos, and they're just terrific. You know, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of, of video as a format because I'm such a music guy. I'd rather learn about the track through the sound of it rather than, the, you know, the, the, someone's impression of the look of it. But you'd make an exception for Prince because he just... Had he just seemed to have so much fun uh, making those clips? You know, we were looking at uh, the clip for Raspberry Beret, for example, or um, uh, the, you know, some of the even some of the lesser known tracks. His his hit "Girls and Boys." We played that at the at the event, and um, it, he did that in a kind of you know black and white, almost like a style of a old sort of jazz black and white um, clip or something. And it, it's brilliant fun. You know, I was so, um, um, I, I I got a kick out of the fact that. Uh, um, some of his costumes, mm. you know, some of his clothes are, are highlighted. And, yeah. you know, I, I wouldn't even think to do that if I had not been to Graceland and walked through where they yeah. have all the mannequins with all of Elvis's yeah. <laughs> capes. Right. And, you know, yeah. it, 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 it is part of who the artist was. Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, I've done that at Graceland a couple of times, and uh, it, it, it is remarkable, especially in, in that setting, because it's, it's such a, you know, by our modern standards, it's such a modest um, building, isn't it? You know, oh, yeah, uh, that, was, yeah. that was surprising to me. Yeah, and I know that um, Paisley Park, you know, Prince's headquarters, as you mentioned, um, was, is now open. I'm sure, I'm sure if it isn't yet, it soon will be back open, you know, to, to the public. Um, to go and view, and you know, you might think that that's a little um, tacky, perhaps. But I, I, the, even the people that were close to him don't don't feel that way. You know, that another thing that came through in the interviews a lot was that um, they, those people I've mentioned, feel almost a sense of responsibility to, um, you know, keep his name alive. Obviously, it's never going to die, but I think they want it to be remembered for the right reasons. You know, they don't want the obviously it. For a little while after anyone dies suddenly like that, that's going to dominate the headlines. But I think their point really is that uh, you know it, it's it's their job to talk up his musical achievements um, 
to anyone who will listen. And they, they're very happy to do that. Susan is a good example of that, Susan Rogers. You know, she, she feels that it's almost her, her role um, to talk about it and to do that in a realistic way, not to deify him by any means. You know, she's, she would say that he's, he had his faults like, like everybody else. But, um, you know, th- at the same time, it, you can't really underestimate the, the, um, just what he did for music over a, at the time that he was with us and, uh, you know, to such a high standard and to, with a legacy, even in his lifetime of 39 albums that he released. Well, I hope when they, when they open up Paisley to, uh, the general public, um, mm. that they, in, in displaying things like the clothing and, and guitars and, and other memorabilia, I hope they do mm. what they did at Graceland, which really impressed me when they had the little videos in each yes. display that sort of yeah. brings the item to life. Yes, you that's see right. Elvis performing in that particular costume, or you see Elvis driving that car. Yeah, it's it's crucial, isn't it, that you have it in that sort of a context. Um, and uh, yeah, I, actually, I, while we're talking, I'm just Paisley Park is is open again now. Actually, for anybody that wants to visit. Oh, good. good. Um, I'm glad you brought. And that. you know, they've done. In fact, if you you know the the, the website, everything that, that that's been you know kept going. Um, in Prince's name is done with a, a huge amount of taste and uh, good judgment, you know. And um, I, it's uh, it, it, I just love the idea that this is somewhere that people can can go in the way that, as you say, they can go to Graceland or uh, in in Nashville. You might go to the Johnny Cash Museum or the Patsy Cline Museum. You know, there's there's a lot of these places now, and they're they're all being done to a really high standard and and in a very clever and innovative way. You know, as you can do now with technology. Yeah, it is great. My guest is Paul Sexton, British music journalist and broadcaster and the author of Prince, a portrait of the artist in memories and memorabilia. Um, Paul, thanks so much for spending this time with me, and, and I hope you'll keep up the good work. Um, well, I always, thanks so much, Tom. I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Paul, do you have a website? Actually, the, the, the surprising answer to that, Tom, is that I don't. And I think that's because I'm from somewhere around the dark ages, and I'm a little slow on these things. I can give you, the, uh, you know, some of the social media um, handles, which would be, would be uh, you know, lovely to hear from people if they'd like to be in touch. Uh, the Twitter is at uh, psexton3, the numeral three. Uh, and on Instagram, it's at paulsextonwrites, as in writing. Um, so you'll find me on there, and uh, yes, that's where to, to have a look at, uh, if anyone would like to, just to see what's, what's coming up next. I'm, I'm in that, one of those lucky people who has, you know, there's just something different going on every day. On, on um, uh, Tuesday this week, for example, I spent the whole day working at Abbey Road, you know, the famous oh, London yeah. studios, uh, which was wonderful, and always is. You know, I mean, I've been going there for 35 years, and it, it, it's, it's every bit as much of a thrill now as it was the first time I walked over that zebra crossing, I tell you. <laughs> Well, Paul, thank you so much again. And uh, as I said, keep up the good work and have a great weekend. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been great talking to you. Take care. That was Paul Sexton, a British music journalist and broadcaster with over 40 years of national and international experience, a regular contributor to Billboard, Music Week, and the Sunday Times. He wrote and produced the acclaimed BBC Radio 2 documentary, 
Prince and Me. He lives in South London, and his book is Prince, a Portrait of the Artist in Memories and Memorabilia. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with more right after this. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to AmericanSchismBook.com. 
MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. This is a great new story I've been working on about a motorbike. It's about this guy. This guy named Charlie. Charlie got a motorbike for his birthday, you know. He was happy. Yeah, I got a motorbike. I got a motorbike. <clears throat> and he wanted his best friend to see it, you know. So he said, I'm going to ride over to my best friend's house and show him my motorbike. And he got on the bike, you know. <clears throat> his friend lived next door. <clears throat> and he calls his friend out, you know, and he shows him the motorbike. And his friend said, yeah, that's always a sharp motorbike. He said, but uh, I bought my tennis shoes down because I wanted you to see my tennis shoes. And Charlie said, tennis shoes? I said, yeah, he said, my tennis shoes, I wanted you to see them. He said, I'm as proud of my tennis shoes as you are that motorbike. He said, in fact, I'm willing to bet you that these tennis shoes are faster than that motorbike. Charlie said, are you crazy? How's a pair of tennis shoes going to be faster than the motorbike? Do you want to race? I said, yeah, I'll race you. So the guy puts on the tennis shoe, Charlie gets on the motorbike, and people were going by up into the hall of the building, and they heard them talking about it, you know, and they went, they're knocking on the doors, you know, the apartments, telling people. So everybody started looking out of the window and said, tennis shoes against the motorbike? Yeah, right down there. Said, he gonna race tennis shoes against the motorbike? Said, that's ridiculous. How's the man tennis shoes gonna meet a motorbike? Said, right down there. <laughs> and then the race started, you know, the motor, the guy on the motorbike starts up. Charlie started about 25 miles an hour. Sometimes my lips get stuck doing this. <laughs> Maybe they'll cut that out. You know? <laughs> and the motorbike's doing about 25 miles an hour, and Charlie's friend is running right alongside him. You know, said, man, he said, you better go and start the race because a lot of people got their money back. <laughs> Charlie said, okay, so I'm going to whip it up to 45. <laughs> and the motorbike's doing about 45, you know, and his buddy's running right alongside him. <laughs> then his buddy passed. Everybody passed him, you know, and he crossed over in front of him, you know, then he went back around him. And the guy, the guy started running backwards, you know, talking to him on the motorbike. He said, you better get out of the way, so I'm going to open this motorbike up. Then he, you know, turned the motorbike full speed. Then the motorbike went about 40, 40, 45 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour, 60 miles an hour, 70 miles an hour, then a big hill, you know, a hill and a curve. Right around that curve, you know. And when he got around the curve, Charlie turned and looked, you know. He looked for his buddy, and his buddy wasn't there. He waited a few minutes. Then he got back on the motorbike and he rolled back around the car. <laughs> then he looked at his buddy's laying in the ditch. It's the same, man. He said, what are you doing in the ditch? And his buddy said, you ever have a tennis shoe blow out on you at 90 This was another Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
Well, that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program. A good one. Everybody showed up. <laughs> we had a, uh, a great lineup of uh, guests today. I hope you enjoyed hearing this last hour devoted to Prince. It seemed appropriate uh, um, being Flint to uh, have Red Corvette from Prince. We had to include a little bit of music after spending the hour talking about Prince with the author of a new book. It's called Prince, a Portrait of the Artist in Memories and Memorabilia from British music journalist and broadcaster Paul Sexton, phoning in from the UK. And uh, before that, this was really interesting for me. As uh, most of my listeners know, I love old movies, and I've uh, been getting some really interesting authors from the University Press of Kentucky, including today's guest, Terry Schulman, who um, has written the book on film's first family, The Untold Story of the Costellos, and uh, how that morphed into the Barrymores, and, and pretty interesting uh, conversation, and some stuff I didn't know about old Hollywood, and, and uh, for a old film nerd like me, it was uh, a real treat talking with Terry, and <clears throat> We started off this morning with a fascinating conversation with Dara Horn, the author of a book called People Love Dead Jews, Reports from a Haunted Present. And uh, Dara is uh, the author of five novels, and she has taught Hebrew and Yiddish literature at Harvard, Sarah Lawrence College, and Yeshiva University. And uh, fascinating conversation with Dara this morning. If you ever miss a uh, conversation and you, or you want to go back and, and hear an interview again, um, go to the website and, and find the uh, show archive where they're listed there by date and hour. And you can listen to the hour that has the interview that you wanted to uh, explore in it. So feel free to uh, join us there. Um, this was a great end to the week with everybody showing up. We started out the week with nobody showing up. <laughs> Although we did have some great interviews on Monday that hadn't aired yet. And uh, um, so it was a great show. But, uh, you know, that's live radio, folks. And in the background, that's smoking George Winters tickling the ivories. Let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room for the... Uh, for the weekend, but I'll be back Monday with another edition of the Tom Sumner program, and I hope that you will be too. Have a great weekend, and in the meantime, good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show, and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. 
If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.